Have you ever been to Ancestry.com or maybe a service similar to that? I've got, we have several family members who have done that and kind of try to trace back the family tree and see their genealogy and all that kind of stuff. And sometimes, you know, you hear stories, people discover something, how they're related to some kind of famous person or something, and that's kind of cool. Or sometimes you meet these family members you never knew you had, and sometimes that's really neat because now you got a bigger family. And sometimes it's like, uh uh-oh, who have we just invited into our family? But it, it is kind of interesting just that, you know, through DNA and this kind of thing, you can go back and you can just kind of see Uh, how far your roots extend and kind of measure the roots of your family tree a little bit. Well, this week, we're kind of jumping off of Ephesians 5, where Paul's talking about, hey, we, we don't need more programs, we need more mission fields. Um, and, or, and so we're, we're jumping off of that to focus on the mission field of the home. And last week we talked about marriage, and so we just want to jump off of that and spend a few weeks and just looking at the importance of the home and how, and how God gives us this vision for connecting the church, which is not an institutional religious organization, but the sent people of God, how God connects the sent people of God, the church, to the home. And when we think of home, oftentimes we think of uh, spouse, people we live with, and that kind of thing. Uh, but through this series, we're going to see these deep connections that go further than that, that it's the spiritual family. And so whether you have uh, kids or no kids, whether you're married or single, that you're all invited into the spiritual family of God, and every family needs roots. And so that's where we're going to begin this morning, is just looking at those roots. And to do that, we're going to start in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 31. So you can go ahead and turn there, Genesis 1, 26 through 31. And in this section, we come to like the of the creation event. It's the climax of creation is God creates humanity. So let's look at it. Genesis 1, 26 through 31, and then I'll weave in and out of scriptures because we'll go to Genesis 2 and 3 also. So it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. You jump into that passage and you read the first few words there. Then God said, let us make man in our image. And the question immediately pops to mind is, what is this us business about? What is this our image anyway? See, there's this character of God that's expressed right here in this passage as God's creating man. There's some kind of character issue about God that he's communicating about himself. And that is that God is triune, that he is one 
essence in three persons, right? He's God the Father, and God the Father is not the Son, and he's not the Spirit, but he is God. And there's the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and the Son is not the Spirit, but the Son is God. And there's the Spirit who is not the Father and is not the Son and is God. So you have right here this triune God, three persons, one essence, this complete perfect unity where we see God exists in himself, in a perfect relationship with himself. And this is a perfect relationship. And so now God says, let's make man, let us do this in our image. Let's make humans who can have a relationship with us as well, with this one God as well. See, every family needs to be rooted in this truth that God made humanity as image bearers of himself. He's given that distinction to us, that we bear the very image of God. This is part and parcel to who we are. In the Latin, it's called the imago Dei, the image of God, that we are image bearers of God. And it simply means that in God's goodness, God has chosen to give creation, uh, humanity in particular, certain attributes and characteristics. And the prize of his creation, humanity, he says, I'm giving you my image, that you are now image bearers of me. And so God's design is, is that we would express these characteristics, that we would express these attributes back to himself, back to God, and then also to each other, that we would represent him as he would choose to represent himself. And so this is, this is what we do. And God wants us to exist in relationship. He's, divine, he's designed us for relationships, that we can talk to one another and communicate one another, and this is good. And so in designing us for relationship as an image bearer of God, we now have this responsibility to bear this image to creation. This is what God is saying to Adam is I want, and then to Eve, is now I want you to have children. I want you to multiply. I want you to be fruitful and multiply. This is a command given to Adam and Eve. I want you to have a family so that this relationship with God can now be passed down to future generations, from generation to generation to generation. And this is the design for the entire creation to see that God designed humanity for relationship, for relationship with himself and for relationship with others, to be satisfied, to be fulfilled uh, by the creator. And we can read further in the biblical account, and we know that some people are called to celibacy, and we know that we, see, we read stories of couples who struggle to have kids and all this. So this is not, uh, um, it's not that all people are called to the same thing, but as the family of God, this is what we're called to, this, this completeness with people, that we would represent this well. And so God in his uh, creation, he, he, his design, it continues to get better. He says, that's not all. Not, not only did he just design us for relationship with himself, not only did he design us for relationship with others, not only do we get to pass that on from generation to generation, there's more goodness in God's creation design. Look at Genesis 2, 15 through 18. Genesis 2, 15 through 18 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of any tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper 
fit for him. God put the man in the garden to work the garden. It was work. Not only did God make the man for relationship with himself, not only did God make the man for relationship with others, not only did God make the man to extend this image of God to future generations, he made the man with a purpose. He gave him work to do. The very work in the garden, this is good. Work is good. It fundamentally at its core is good. And he doesn't have anything to work with, right? He's just in the garden, and, and, and God says, hey, you work it. So now he's got to be creative, and he's got to think, how am I going to work it? What am I going to do? How? And, and he's got to do all this stuff to take care of this land. And, and God says, I want you to have joy in it, that this is good, to, to know that it's good to be alive, and there's purpose, that there's reason for being in what you're doing, care for the land, use its resources, make it even better. And God says, as you're working... You're free to eat from any, any tree out here. Any tree out here. It's all good for food. Eat from whatever tree you want. Just don't eat from that one. You know, there's something about humanity that when we hear, we can hear like, oh, this is good. Eat from whatever tree you want. Just don't eat from that one. And what does our mind go to? We go to the restriction, right? We go to, oh, man, you're not going to let us eat from that one? Like, there's a whole forest full of trees out there with fruit on it. But we go, you're not going to let us eat from that one, God? That's kind of messed up. You, you must not love us enough or you would let us eat from it. Or maybe I haven't earned it yet. And if I earn it, then I can eat from it. That's how we tend to interpret things. That's not the way Adam would have interpreted it then. Okay? Just so we're clear. Adam would not have thought that. Adam's focus would not be, like, why can I not eat from that tree? His focus would not have been on the restriction. Not at first. Okay, we'll see that. But God is creator. He places humanity inside of his design so that in being in God's design, God now has the right to place whatever limitations that he wants to on his creation. He can say, do this, don't do that. This will be good, this won't be good. And, and he can do all that because he has that right as creator. It doesn't have anything to do with what, how he loves, except that his commands are always out of love for us. They're always for our good. So any restriction he puts on us is always a good thing. It's never bad. But we'll see in just a moment, God puts this restriction on Adam and then Eve because he knew they couldn't handle the consequences. He knew the consequences that would come and that they could not handle those consequences in and of themselves if they disobeyed, if they violated this restriction. This restriction was not in place to, for God to be some kind of killjoy, but because God loved them. And here's the thing about God, and, and I think it's important to note, Adam always knew where he stood with God. He always knew. Now, I don't know about you, but I appreciate transparency, right? We want people who will speak honestly with us and, you know, yeah, you season it in love and you're kind and you're gracious, but you want honesty. You want transparency. And that's what God does with Adam. He, he, he gives Adam his word. He gives Adam instruction. He, he tells Adam what to do. He says, here's, here, here's the consequences. If you violate it, here's where you stand with me. And so he's communicated clearly and honestly out of goodness and love for Adam. He says, here, here's, here's the restrictions. And then after he does that, 
he looks at Adam and he says, you know, Adam, I want you to be able to enjoy this garden to its fullest. I want you to be able to enjoy all this creation that I've given you to its fullest. But you can't do that alone. It's not good for you to be alone. So I'm going to make you the perfect helper for you. And to, so you can enjoy this to its fullest. And so from the rib of Adam, God creates Eve. And God brings Eve to Adam. And Adam, I mean, he, you know, he starts doing backflips. And, you know, he's so excited. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I'm calling her woman. And then the Bible says, and for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one. In the Hebrew, it's like the two will be fused together as one. And so there's this beautiful picture that God gives us. God says, you have my image, and I want you to enjoy extending it to each other. I want you to extend it back to me. I want you to have work. It's purposeful, a reason for being and joy in this. I want you to have clear words from my mouth, clear instructions so that you know exactly where you stand with me so that you know what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. And he'll always be honest with us. And so we have all this, and I want you to enjoy all of this with Eve, that you don't have to do it alone. This is good. This is the ideal situation for the family. That you know who I am. This is who I'm created to be. That I'm an image bearer of God and I am made to extend that image back to God himself and then to others. And I know this. And I know that work is fundamentally at its core good. And so that I should be the hardest worker out there because that, that is part of reflecting the goodness of God. And, and I should be creative so that I can, I, can, I can take care of the resources that have been entrusted to me well. And I, could, I can add things that are good to humanity. And I can enjoy this with somebody else. Like I'm, I'm meant to be relational. See, every family needs to be rooted in that where they know this, this, is, who, this is who we are. This is who I am. And you got to tell your family that because if you don't tell your family that, the world will tell them who they are. And the world always gets it wrong. See, God spoke clearly and honestly with Adam. He said, you're, you're, you're made in my image. Of, out of all creation, I've designed you special. You have a special purpose, a special function, and I want you to be in relationship with me. I've made you to experience joy. This is good. But something happens, and now it becomes much more difficult to share that, to be rooted in all of this. Because if the story ended right there, we'd be really good at establishing those roots and seeing those roots. But the story doesn't end there. And so it becomes like Ancestry.com a little bit where I don't, I don't know where my roots go. I don't know how far back they go. To. I don't know. I mean, I know my relationships back to like my great-grandparents, and that's about as far as I can go. Some people a little more, some people less, but that's just how it is. And if it's just stopped right there. Everything was good. I mean, you got Adam and Eve, they're naked in the garden, and there's no shame. There's just complete trust. There's complete satisfaction, complete transparency, openness, honesty, purity, goodness. Uh, th this was the ideal for humanity that we realize our roots perfectly. But soon there's mistrust. There's shame. There's, there's disappointment. There's hiding. There's defilement. It would not be good. And because of that, we struggle today to establish the roots that need to be established. Look at Genesis 3, 1 through 19. 
to show the depths of this. Genesis 3, 1 through 19. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig trees together and they made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I told you I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Satan shows up, and he says, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? You see what Satan did right there? So he just kind of twists God's words just a little bit, you know? God didn't say, no, you can't eat from any tree. God said you can't eat from that tree. But that's what Satan does. He kind of twists things just a little bit and begins to sow these seeds of doubt, and he points... Um, out this restriction. He says, you know, if God was good, would he really forbid you to eat of that? Just kind of planting these seeds of doubt, trying to make it look like God is not good to you. God's trying to keep his godness and not share it with you. God does not want you to be like him. And you hear Eve's response. And Eve said, well, God didn't actually say that. But what God did say was that I couldn't eat from, we can't eat from that tree of the garden and we can't touch it. 
And now, did God say that they couldn't touch it? Now they're adding their own restrictions to it. And let me stop here for a moment and just say this. This is the first conversation in Scripture where you have a human talking about God and not talking to God. Right? He, she's, Eve's just talking about God. But she's not talking to him. God's done all this for Adam and Eve, right? He's, he's given them his image. He's given them relationship with himself, with each other. He's given them work and purpose and meaning. He's, he's given the, them the responsibility of extending his image to future generations. He's done all this. He's given them clear instruction. You would think that if Eve just said, hey, serpent, hold on for one second. Let me just go over here. I need some clarity on this. I'm a little fuzzy. Let me just ask, hey, God... I'm having this conversation going on. I'm not quite sure what's, what's right. She doesn't do that. Instead of talking to God, she just starts talking about God. And you know what? Sometimes we do the same thing. It's real easy for us. We can talk about God. We can get all our speculations. Hey, well, we ought to do this. We ought to do that. Whatever. Instead of just going to the truth of the scriptures, instead of just praying and asking God ourselves, hey, God, what, what would you have me do? Let me look. What, what have you said about this? What are the instructions? What are the guidelines? We just kind of formulate our own ideas, our own opinions. Yeah, this, this seems right to us. And we can make judgments by what feels right, what seems right, our own logic, all this kind of stuff, instead of just asking and going to God. That's what happens in the moment. And in that moment, when we're doing that, and God, he's given us his plans for us and how we ought to live, what we are saying is, God, I'm not so much interested in the relationship with you, in talking to you, in coming to you, in seeking your truth out, what I'm really interested in is having your responsibilities. I, I don't want the relationship. I just want to be you. I just want to be God. And you know what? We see it, right, with our kids, right? It's not about the relationship. I want to be the parent in this situation. I want to be the one to make the rules, you know, we see it with our spouses. Oh, the husband's given these responsibilities. The wife's given these responsibilities. And sometimes we say, I'd, I'd rather have your responsibilities. It's not about the relationship. It's about your function. And that's what I want. And every time we do that horizontally with each other, we've also done it vertically with God. Because we've decided, I want to be God in this situation. I want to decide the way parents and children interact with each other. I want to be the one to decide the way a husband and wife interact with each other. I want to be the one to make the rules. I want to be God. And we do the same thing with each other. I'm going to be God in this relationship because I'm going to take, I'm going to take your role. I'm going to take your responsibility. And so what happens? They end up naked. And now they know it. And they are embarrassed because they've just invited sin in to God's grand design for the family, for relationship. And the first thing it does is it embarrasses them. And now they start hiding and they start posturing and they start wearing masks. And we've been doing it ever since. We hide, we posture, we pretend we wear masks. <laughs> because we know we're damaged. That's what sin does. It damages us. All that good 
that God created. He created his people for good. He had this grand design for good. And then what happened? We're damaged by evil. We're all damaged by evil. We're damaged by sin. They start hiding and God asks the man, where are you? God's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's not asking, where are you physically? He already knows that. He's asking them so that they have to say, this is where I'm at. It's more a spiritual question. So they can say, this is where I'm at. This is what I'm doing. And then he can point out, this reveals where you are spiritually. This reveals what has happened. And notice, Eve might have eaten the fruit first, and she might have been the one to hand it to Adam. But God calls the man. God holds Adam responsible for this marriage relationship. And God says to Adam, did you eat from the tree that you weren't supposed to eat from? And what does Adam start doing? Oh, man, he's pointing fingers all over the place. It was, it was Eve, it was that woman. That woman. And you gave her to me. It's her fault and it's your fault. It's not my fault. She made me do it, and you gave her to me. I wasn't the one who said that it's not good for me to be alone. God, please send me a helper. I'm struggling here. No, I was, I was enjoying your creation when you said it wasn't good for me to be alone. It's your fault, God. And it's her fault. And then God looks at Eve and says, so what's all this about? And Eve, she's just been thrown under the bus, right? And she starts pointing fingers too. No, she doesn't point it back at Adam. What does she do? She points at the serpent. It's his fault. He deceived me. He came over. He tricked me and all this. It's, it's his fault. That's what sin does. It causes us to abdicate our responsibility. We want to point the finger. It's their fault. Things are going well. It's their fault. It's always somebody else's fault. Because we, we don't want to take responsibility for our actions, for, for our words, for our thoughts, for whatever it is we do. The serpent's fault, the woman's fault. God, it's your fault. And so we're pointing fingers all over the place. That's not love. That's blame. That's just throwing people under the bus. But it happens because we're damaged by evil. You know, our families, we don't need a sermon to know that we're messed up. We all know we're messed up. But what we need to know is how far back those roots go. Why are we messed up? Let me show you. It goes a long way back. We have a history. We're from a lineage of messed up people. We're all damaged by evil. That's why that's our inclination, to point fingers, to blame shift, to not take responsibility. And God says, because you've done this, because you're damaged by evil, there are consequences to this. You took this good design this, this image, my image, and you've tarnished it. You've, you've marred it. You, you've distorted the image given to you. So now in your marriages, in your families, in the relationships that are closest to you, it is in those relationships that you are going to feel the greatest pain because you will suffer the sting of the bite of the serpent from the garden. And family life will be difficult now because you've been damaged by evil. And this will be the struggle until the day you die because we're damaged by evil. And notice, death was not part of the original design, right? That's another consequence. But also notice this, in the middle of all this pain, 
and all these consequences. Wrapped inside all that is hope. Because God talks about childbirth. And yeah, it's wrapped in pain. It's going to be painful now. I mean, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It's going to hurt. But that's a word of hope. Because it indicates that God is not done with humanity. He says, I'm not just going to forget it all and start over. I'm not just wiping the, cl- the slate clean. I'm not done with you yet. There's going to be more generations. It's, it's, I'm not discarding the human race. The other mark of hope Death. Death is the greatest consequence of sin. It's the, it's, the, it's the most fierce enemy of humanity. It is an enemy. It is evil. It is, it is evil to its core. It is never good. But at the same time, it is God communicating to his people that I do not want you to live in this messed up state forever. I, I, don't, want, I don't want you to just be relegated to this brokenness in a world that's been damaged by evil forever, that I will rescue you and redeem you to myself, but you can't do it alone. You can't do it. He will crush the head of the serpent. We'll get to that in a second, but only God can redeem what's broken. And so there are seeds of hope just buried in the manure of sin in this passage, and the passage goes on, and Adam Adam names, names the woman Eve. Okay, he names her that after the fall. Did you notice that? Adam names Eve after the fall, and he names her the mother of all living. So even then, even in the naming of Eve, Adam has understood that there's something good about being alive, about life. And this, this is the woman's name now. And, and God cares for this couple by killing an animal and saying, okay, you're trying to sew, sew fig leaves together. Here's an animal. Here's animal skin so that you can cover yourself. And, and before this, you go back to Genesis 1. Everybody's a vegetarian. Animals are vegetarian. They're not meat eaters yet. All, that'll happen later. Uh, but sin always results in death. And so in this case, it's, it's a spiritual death that Adam and Eve face with God. It's also the physical death of an animal. That, that God has to go and kill an animal. Because of their sin, God turned to an animal and killed it in order to cover them. But even in that, God is protecting his people. He's, he doesn't discard them. He protects them. And then God banishes Adam and Eve from the garden and places an angel there to protect it. Remember, it was Adam's job to protect and care for the garden And now God says, no, you are not allowed to go back to the garden. I am removing you from this place because you couldn't do your job because you neglected the responsibility that you were supposed to have here. I'm taking you away from it, and I'm putting now an angel to be in charge of it. You can't come back. The home, this marriage, this family, it was designed for good. It was the ideal design. It was a perfect plan. So much so that uh, we who are Christians, whether married, whether single, whether we have kids or not, we've all been adopted now into a spiritual family because it's still the design. This is a good design. Just because the model was flawed does not mean the design is bad. And so God's design for spreading his glory, his fame, his, his, his gloriousness for taking people uh, into hope and into encouragement and into worth and purpose. It's always been connected to the family. 
because he's adopted us into a family. But we can't go back to the garden, right? We can't, we can't fix ourselves. We can't make it right. And this is, though the serpent bit humanity, right? The serpent bites humanity. There is coming down through the family tree, Jesus Christ. Fully man, fully God. And when the serpent bites humanity and Jesus hangs on the cross and it looks like all hope is lost and and the serpent is rejoicing, Satan is rejoicing, we win, we win, God is dead, all this kind of stuff. Jesus is resurrected from the dead so that one day in the future he will come back and crush the head of the serpent fully and finally, vanquishing sin and saving us forever. Um, And it's only possible through the saving work of Jesus Christ that we can't defeat sin. We're damaged by evil and we can't do it on our own. But that God can restore it and he can make it good again so that we can live for good again. And this this is the roots that we've got to establish in every family. Right? That we were created by God for good. That we've been damaged by evil. And that only Jesus can come and can take what's damaged and make us useful for good again. And it's not just back to relationship. right? That's, that's only part of it. God didn't create Adam and Eve simply for relationship. That's a part. It's a big part. But he created them for relationship, yes, with God, but also with each other. Also to extend this goodness to the future generations. Also to work and to be creative and and, and to be a benefit to the overall society. With clear instructions on what's good and what's bad. And we have all of this now that we take and God redeems all of it. So that we can go and then he tells us in the New Testament, his church, of part of his redemption process. Here's what I want you to do. Here's what the people of God do. You must be rooted in the idea that you are a disciple maker. This is part and parcel to what it means to be Christian. That you go and you make disciples. You don't make converts. There's nothing about converts. You go and you make disciples. Baptizing them. All right. So there's two parts of the disciple making process that he gives. You baptize them. And then you teach them. Baptizing them, that sounds like there's a guy named Gene Getz. Okay? He used to be a prof at Dallas Seminary, smart guy. And he, he looks at this and he says, okay, baptizing them, that seems to speak more to people who don't know Jesus at all yet, right? I mean, this is, you know, who needs to be baptized? Someone who just comes into a relationship to Jesus, like baby new believers. Teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded Who's that? That's people who've maybe walked with Jesus at least for a little bit and need to learn more, need to, need to grow in the knowledge of what, it's, what, it, what it means to be in the family of God and what, what a productive family member does. And so he goes through the New Testament and he looks and he says, okay, here's all the verses that deal with new believers. Here's all the verses that deal with people who've been with Jesus a little bit. And what he found was it was about 50-50. About 50% of the verses he classified as dealing with people who are lost, who are, or who are in chair one. 
And then the other 50% people who have been with Jesus a little bit at least, and now we're in the teaching mode, chairs two through four. And then he made the statement that most Christians, when we think of discipleship, we simply think of teaching them. That we're not going and engaging lost people and discipling them. So we miss it. He says, you must get back to doing what you're called to do as the sent people of God. Because discipleship is not something that takes place after evangelism. Evangelism is just part of the whole disciple-making process. This is part and parcel of what it means to be a believer. You are the sent people of God. So we, add, so we take all the stuff. And by the way, this is the same, it was the same was true for the Israelites. The Israelites in the Old Testament, they were to stand up as a light to the surrounding nations, that they looked different. And then when they don't look different, then all kinds of problems begin to happen. So we must have marriages, we must lead families, we must have churches rooted in this big picture of Scripture that knows this is who we are. This, this is what it means to be Christian. This is how far the roots spread back of what it looked like in the beginning and how God created things and then how we're damaged by evil, but how Jesus come and he's redeemed us so that we can go and share Jesus and impact people. And, you know, it's never too late to start. That, that's part of it for Adam and Eve. It's never too late to start. You don't have to, well, I haven't, I don't know if I've really done this well. I don't think I can do it now. No. It's never too late to start. This is Adam and Eve, the story, and we could, we could trace it out further. So we must begin doing today what we're called to do if we haven't already, and that is make disciples to be able to share this grand picture of Jesus, establish these roots. We, God created us for good. We've been damaged by evil, but Jesus can redeem us so that we can be the sent people of God to redeem culture. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have saved us with a purpose, just like you created us with a purpose. Um, so God, help us to live it well. Forgive us for when we neglect it, when we blame shift, when we point to all of our responsibilities and all the other busyness of life, and, and we don't just focus on who you've made us to be. God, may we represent you as you would represent yourself. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.